you can see I'm in a new location here. Uh, finally, finally, we were able to close on our home and get into a place. Uh, things are haphazard right now. Half of my stuff is still in storage, but I have my own official room with which to do the podcast in and to handle all my gear. Devin, what about you, man? What have you been up to? Oh, I've been dealing with um, the Skype troubles as usual. Um, getting Blackmagic ATEMS HDMI input to recognize a computer, it's been a total nightmare. I might just suck it up and get one of those DVI to SDI converters because, um, I don't know, they're switchers. I've heard nothing but troubles on their forms of trying to get a computer HDMI inputs to work. So I've been struggling with that for the week as well as um, since we have some downtime at the studio, fixing up other things here and there. Um, but that's mostly been it with me. I've been just really busy at the studio, did running you, cables and testing stuff. Did you get that audio sync issue that you were working on sorted out? Yeah, yeah. It, we just we got an audio delayer. We got a, a something that's supposed to convert SDI, uh, an on-job box to convert SDI to HDMI, uh, but it's got a built-in audio delayer. So even though that's not the purpose of the box, it was a cheap way for us for a couple hundred to go ahead and add a digital audio delay without breaking out to analog or anything like that. So uh, the Aja box allows anywhere between zero to seven frames in increments of like 0.1 of a frame. So we were able to kind of dial it down there and get it, but it's, it became pretty apparent that us using a key as well as overlay graphics, each time we added something, uh, we were adding a frame of delay. So uh, we synced it right before the recording and uh, right before what would go out live once we start broadcasting live. So we got it sorted out, but unfortunately not through you know, necessarily a firmware update or anything from black magic just through buying other hardware to compensate. Dang it. Well, <laughs> yeah. On my end, if you it's look a little her, disappointing. <laughs> yeah, no joke. That sounds uh, extremely painful and especially mm -hmm. trying to like find out how much delay it is and really getting that sorted out. I mean, that's a lot of checks and balances and going through your whole setup to yep. figure out what it's adding on my end. And, uh, if you look yeah, around me, um, I am in Ikea heaven now. Uh, I have shelves, I have spacing, I have all sorts of stuff to hold things. Um, this thing behind me, I don't know how to pronounce it because it's some Swedish name, but for $1.99, <laughs> you can get this giant box square thing that goes over an entire wall. And uh, man, for DSLR storage, I can fit lenses. I can, I'm going to, when it's done, it'll be lined up so it'll be Canon down one row, uh, Panasonic down one row, <laughs> Sony down another row, audio gear, and so on. And then mm -hmm. behind me here, these wireframes were only uh, 129 and I've never lived close to an Ikea before, so it's kind of sweet to just like roll <laughs> in and be like, hey, I need shelving. Here's how many inches I have. And they're like, oh, this is the exact size right here. No problem. Here you go, man. And you go through their crazy warehouse and try and figure out how to do stuff. So that's a thing. If you're in for a lot of storage and you have a small space to work with, man, Ikea, even though it's kind of assemble yourself, uh, I don't want to say junk, but uh, definitely not like top-notch stuff, it's still well hey, when worth you're, investing when you're in. Trying to save a buck when you're trying to save a buck it's uh it's the economic choice <laughs> and sorry man i didn't mean to cut you off with the uh, shelving talk what else did you what else did you have on that oh no, no, no. so it was just um, the further i did the research i realized that things like a tricaster uh, which some uh, pros frown upon just because it's a large software layer on top of the uh hardware layer things like of course, your uh, Green Valley and all of them have it, but I was surprised. Even the TriCaster we had before uh, includes an automatic audio delayer to help keep things in sync when you uh, start adding keys and graphics and all those kind of overlay elements. So 
I don't know. I guess I was just kind of surprised that the Black Magic is so talked about and everything else and a great switcher for the price. And it seems like such a simple thing for them not to include. And considering the fact there's been so many firmware updates and everything else, I just don't think the hardware is capable of doing an audio delay because I think that it requires hardware to be in there, not just something that like, oh, with a little bit of software programming you could do uh, because of how, you know, uh, minimal they create their hardware. So. Yeah, I don't know. Um, on something like an audio delay, you have to change the oscillator on the mm-hmm. uh, on the um, audio chip itself in order to change the rate or the multiplier. And you can usually do that with a, uh, a firmware patch. Uh, basically, you just change the way you multiply the oscillator frequency as it goes into your DAC, and you should be good to go. But... Um, it depends on if they left that open or if it was just a pre-built chip that only had one setting. So that could be the issue. I don't know. I'd have to dig deep into the circuitry to find out. But And, and people have been complaining, and Blackmagic uh, has really not responded at all to it after all this time. So I don't have my hopes up that uh, there will be a better solution than getting external hardware. So I guess something to keep in mind, if you're having an ATEM and you're going to do keying and graphics, you might want to pick up an audio to layer to go with it. Not something I would like, like to be mean about uh, with Blackmagic, <laughs> but this is, again, like a story of uh, chicken before the egg. You know, like they, they come up with something really cool and you're excited about it, but then at the back end, you're like, well, this doesn't work and this is messed up and this is sort of funky, what's mm-hmm. going on here? And they're like, oh, we'll get to it in revision number whenever we feel like it, you know? And <laughs> that's why I wasn't super excited about the their, their new small cameras, their new smaller 4K cameras, is because I'm concerned about the quality that we're going to get as far as firmware updates and everything else that's going on with those. And they're so new and so different, like... What are we going to get? You know, there's what problems are we going to have? What are we going to run into next that we're just like, oh, man, really? Come on, guys. Are are we going to find dust under our sensors again? (laughs) You know, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, I do think that the the heart, they they understand kind of what people need. And I feel like the hardware has been getting better in revisions. Again, they've been getting better about like meeting deadlines and things like that, that some would argue they should have been doing in the first place. But as a brand new company who jumped ship from uh, making capture boxes over to a camera company, uh, I think they've learned a lot in the short period of time that they've become that. But I think people still need to recognize that they are kind of new at this And it's not exactly like they have, uh, you know, some kind of ex leader, like, say, you know, an old um, technician from Canon or something like that, or a Canon engineer, an icon engineer who came over and helped them. They kind of been hiring outside and finding their own way through making a camera company and switchers and all that kind of stuff. So it's one of those that I feel like there's always going to be a little bit of growing pains until they kind of reach, you know, a, a while of doing this stuff. Now, speaking of growing pains, I'm going to jump around in the show notes here, and we're going to skip on to the news. Man, Seiki is a company that's been out for a while releasing 4K panels, and their first panels did have some growing pains. They were basically televisions packaged into a 4K panel that was being adopted by people for editing and so on. But the problem was they were limited to 30 hertz, and they were TN panels. 
Now mm-hmm. Seiki has the fancy uh, what I, I don't even know what the model name is. It's um, some bunch of letters and numbers, but <laughs> these are 40-inch 4K 60 hertz panels, and instead of being TN, uh, they're using Super MVA, which uh, is kind of the stepping stone in technology between TN and IPS. So you get better viewing angles, a little bit better color produ- uh, reproduction, and better off-axis viewing. Uh, the price on these guys looks to be about a thousand dollars. But the thing I'm excited about with this is it's a 40-inch panel, and it's 4K. Right now, I am on one of the Samsung uh, 4K 28-inch panels, and I deal with the tiny text issue all the time. Right. Um, if you don't yep. use any kind of scaling, or even if you do use scaling, some programs don't recognize it, the resolution right. is so high on the screen that your text is tiny, and I have to kind of lean in to read everything. With this, 40 inches... That's just about right to be one for one I, with a I, regular screen. What yeah, do you think, I Devin? think 40 inches is the sweet spot if you're talking about um, uh, UHD, which this is, I, I know like 4K can get kind of confusing, but this is the UHD kind of 4K, not the, um, true I guess you say cinema the, 4K. Yeah, true cinema. 4K. Uh, but um, it's still an exciting price point, the fact that it's got those uh, 60 hertz. Of course, uh, anyone out there who is uh, interested because of this new price point needs to remember that you need a graphics card that can drive it. Uh, I believe this one takes two um, display ports in order to run that 4K at 60 hertz. I don't know if there's newer display port technology where you only require one cable, but you're going to need a fancy graphics card in order to drive a display like this. But 40 inches to me makes sense. Because uh, it's always like kind of that argument. It's the same reason why I wouldn't buy a 19-inch uh, 1080p TV, you know, for any purpose, just because it's you, you're not going to see the difference. Um, and f- with the 27-inch, 28-inch range, I think 1440p is a really sweet spot for it's higher than 1080. It's not 4K, but you get that extra detail, extra resolution, and I don't have to squint at everything. Uh, but... 40 inches, I, it would take up my entire desk. It's kind of large for a monitor, but 4K on a monitor, that big makes sense to me because you're almost throwing what would normally span for me on two monitors. I can fit all that on one monitor. So depending on your workflow and your editing style, um, it's it's definitely exciting, and I'm really happy to see these prices come down. And it's not like Seki is a terrible brand and they're, you know, complete garbage and you should avoid them. It's like they, they make decent stuff at a lower price. And like you said, this isn't IPS or anything like that, but if you want that resolution over color reproduction or something like that, this is a great buy. Now I'm glancing at the specs here and it looks like this is um, a display port 1.2. So that can handle 60 Hertz at 4k with a single plug. I think it's the HDMI that's actually limited on this guy. So if you're using this monitor, I think you, you need two HDMI links because it's using the older standard of HDMI. So you would only get 30 Hertz at uh, 4k or 60 Hertz. Or, so I think that's the, the difference here. I'm looking down the specs just to make sure I'm not getting, this wrong the other cool thing this has and this might be interesting for something uh in a switching environment is uh it has independent inputs and it'll scale to four screens on screen so if you have uh four different incoming video signals you could actually box that up onto a single 40 inch panel and get you know a view of what's on each feed as you switch around (laughs) Uh, you know i don't know how many people have a need for that and then how many people would go with a non-broadcast quality screen but i mean it's kind of a macgyver way to go well, it, it's interesting, too, because that almost makes it sound like you could take, um, uh, say, if you've got a couple of low-end graphics cards that don't support 4K, you could almost make your own 4K with um, the Windows framing and stuff like that. 
Oh yeah, uh, just you could because... probably use Ifinity or something uh, that nature in order to like run out multiple outputs. <laughs> That'd be kind of wacky, but it'd be interesting. Yeah, or you know, if you if you got if you really have a budget computer, and you're like, oh, I've just got a bunch of like two seventy fives or something like that that don't necessarily really drive four K. You could maybe pop a few more of those in there. They both support two. Put two of them in there, and you could kind of have four K for like almost nothing on the graphics card price. Uh, though that's not the most elegant solution for doing that. I like, too, the fact that it's got um, a USB 3.0 hub. I know that's a small thing, but for me, I always just find there's random USB crap I keep needing to plug in here and there. And so having a monitor where I can kind of hide some of the dongles for, like, my wireless mouse and stuff like that, I appreciate that kind of a thing. So I'm, I really like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you, though, on the size. Uh, a 4K panel and... <laughs> You know, I, I was thinking about this practically because right now I'm, I'm on a 28 inch. I had the uh, four, uh, 2160 by 1440 panel before that. And the thing that I run into now is 28 inches. It's just about right for eye level to look at the monitor. But if you put a 40 inch panel on a stand and then put it on your desk, you're going to be like looking way up in the air to, to see the top part of the screen. And yep. so now you're going to be in that situation where what are you going to do? Well, you're going to look forward and you're probably going to move all your icons and stuff and your all your desktop real estate down to sort of the bottom part. And you're not even going to want to look up. You almost have to recess this into your desk or maybe use a would, verse amount to like bring it down what flat. What would make sense to me, and I, I get exactly what you're saying, what would make sense for me, uh, why I would buy this just for me personally uh, would be a TV to go above my monitors, uh, which you've seen in a lot of edit suites is a very popular thing to do. But as a 4K display that's full 4K that I could watch UHD footage on pixel for pixel, you know, for color. Well, not necessarily for color because it is not, you know, but still I could w use it as a display for output. And at somewhat of a distance, and since I'm not staring at it constantly, I don't need to necessarily worry about its height and everything else because for me – uh, anything bigger than 30, it kind of feels like really you're going to be looking all over the place or you're going to push it so far back that you kind of lose the advantage of having uh, higher, um, you know, higher resolution. So to me, it, it fits in that place where you put it above your edit desk and maybe you got a curved display. That's why for me, editing curved displays make a lot of sense. I run three displays right now, uh, but if I, you know, had to replace them for some reason, I'd be looking at curved, high resolution curved, but not necessarily curved, just long, just those long displays, because I'm like, that's what I'm going to end up doing with multiple monitors anyway. So it kind of makes sense. Um, and that's where the pixel real estate makes sense, because it's easy for me to turn left and right. But as soon as I start looking up and down to look at my media bins and everything else, I feel like uh, it's going to get in the way of production. Now, I'm looking on uh, Amazon right now, and it does look like people are buying this, sort of testing it out and sending it back to Amazon, and it's showing up in warehouse deals. So you can already find this for eight twenty one dollars on Amazon Prime warehouse deals and $870, $860, There's five or six of them up right now. So if you are looking to get a deal on this, uh, I'm surprised that the price is already dropping. Moving on down the line, and this is actually above in the show notes here. I'm jumping all over the place. Um, <laughs> Metabones, I just started messing around with my speed booster. I picked it up a, a month or so ago, two months ago maybe. And now they're releasing yet another speed booster. Uh, this time, the crop factor multiplier is 0.64 as opposed to 0.71. So that brings you down in 4K mode to basically super 35 millimeter crop factor APS-C. And instead of just being a uh, one 
stop boost. Now it's a one and a third stop boost. So it sounds like what they're doing here is they're magnifying the image down even smaller. And by doing that, they're increasing the amount of light to the sensor and increasing the magnification of the lens so that they're bringing it closer to um, an APS-C size aspect on your uh, GH4 or whatever. Now, there's no pricing on this yet, and the only reason I know about this is I swung over to the Metabone site to update the firmware on my speed booster, and this was on the front page, just sitting there hanging out. No fanfare, no nothing. <laughs> I didn't see any news related to this or what have you. Devin, are you excited about this? Do you even care? Is this something well, that you're uh, it's, you know, onto? I, well, I'm always looking for stuff to, uh, you know, to affix to uh, my Panasonic cameras. But in this case... Knowing Metabones and seeing that um, what they're doing here, I imagine the pricing is still going to be above 500 And for the pricing to be that high, but only service one mode of my camera, because, you know, it's because this is basically right. It, it's cropping a little smaller, which works for the 4K on the GH4. But if you're to shoot 1080 on the GH4, you get slightly larger view, right? Uh, so, yeah. so it's one of those where I'm like, that's a lot of money that I can only use with one mode on my camera. Um, though I suppose you could take this and throw it on the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera uh, because that one is such a small sensor. You know you're going to cover it anyways. But there's a better Metabones for that. For me, it just seems really excessive that now we're not just getting down to like, oh, here's a mount just for this one camera. Now we're getting to like, here's a mount for this one camera and this one camera mode. I'm like... I just don't see myself buying it. I'm sure that there's a place for it, and maybe in rentals it makes a lot more sense. But for me, I'm like, I'm not gaining a whole lot versus the more universal ones. So I would never see myself taking that one over this one unless they've made some serious improvements to the autofocus systems or other stuff like that. Uh, that you mentioned having problems with your Metabones. Yeah, I bought the uh, version 4, and I've got it right here. And I did buy this used, by the way, so I didn't pay the full five ninety nine. I think I got it for 410 or 415 so it wasn't horrible. But, yeah, mm -hmm. as I started to use it, and I didn't... I didn't do as much research as I probably should have. I just kind of was like, oh, that's a good deal. I'll pull the trigger on it and see how it goes. <laughs> so I'm playing around with it. It turns out, you know, no autofocus in photo mode. So, or no autofocus, period. So that's an issue. In photo mode, you also lose um, the preview of your aperture settings. So you're kind of like playing crapshoot when you're taking a picture because you don't actually know what the exposure is going to be until you click mm -hmm. it and find out in video mode. The preview for aperture works just fine. Um, most of the readings work fine most of the time, but sometimes it'll lock up the GH4. Uh, it does bring in a lot more light and it does do a great job with, I, I was running around with the, uh, 51.4 on there and the, uh, 51.2, uh, earlier this week. And it looks nice. I like it. It's just that, like you said, you know, that's the price of a, a decent lens, and, yeah. you know, for what? Well, I mean, something that I also have to own a bunch of canning glass in order to use. So now you're turning your 51.4 or your 85.18 or your 35 F2 into like a eight or $900 piece of kit because you have this $500 adapter, yeah. you know, right behind it. That's not that good of a, a I guess it's one of those where this is a good solution if you have a lot of canon glass like you do and you're also a big fan of the gh4 uh for its size uh for its size and ability 
but it's not a great solution uh, because you still are making several sacrifices that you normally wouldn't have a problem with if you were using a different Canon camera, whether it's C300 or whatever else you got going on. So it's, it's still one of those where I'm like, I don't feel like you gain a whole lot for the price, but if you've already made the investment in Canon, then it can make sense. I mean, like you said, it's, and from what I've seen in the test, it's definitely sharp. It's definitely brighter. It serves both of those functions fantastically. It's just kind of like this feature and usability that makes it a bit more of a headache than you think that it should be. I mean, after all, they, they are taking two companies and smashing them together. So I don't imagine that will ever work perfectly uh, just because I'm, I'm sure Canon is not a fan necessarily of people doing this. But well, what I'm hoping for in the future, uh, that, that Kippen adapter that uh, we talked about a couple episodes ago with the super fast autofocus control with Canon mm-hmm. glass yeah. on a GH4, if somehow uh, Metabones could buy them out or you know partner <laughs> with them for the electronics portion and then add mm-hmm. their you know focal reducer to that system, that would be really sexy. And I don't know if that would actually work or not. There may be some back-end stuff with the focal reducer that's going on that would change the way the camera would be able to acquire focus. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. Um, it might also mean because of the crop factor and everything else that you have to drive the lens to a different um, millimeter setting in order to accomplish focus versus traditional. And they may not work out math-wise. But that's... <sighs> You know, honestly, I have a, a whole kit of GH4, or I mean, of Panasonic and Olympus Glass. I don't really need, per se, a speed booster in my collection to, like, <laughs> get by with anything. And mm-hmm. having my Canon Glass as a fully functioning piece of kit on the GH4 body would be more attractive to me than the speed booster itself. I see myself right. using the speed booster as, you know, an occasional, like, oh, this is cool, and boy, the it, the GH4 is breaking up a little bit at uh, uh, 1600 ISO. If I put this on here and open it wide open, I'll get just enough light that everything will turn out fine. Well, that's going to be a once-in-a-while type of deal. It's not going to be all the time. In fact, I've even considering selling this after I do the full review. So if anybody's interested mm-hmm. in a uh, <laughs> version 4 Metabone speed booster for the GH4, you might want to check it out. But the thing is, I think, is it's really I think specific... Yeah, but and I think too that what the Metabones is fantastic at for an adapter that I would I have seriously considered putting down money for uh, is that Blackmagic Pocket Cinema because uh, with that super 16 uh, millimeter sensor, it is difficult to go wide uh, and it is difficult to get enough light for that sensor. I mean, though the noise on it, I'm you know like a lot better than some other cameras. Uh, it's not nearly as blocky, especially with the ProRes and the higher bit rates. But uh, for me that Metabones adapter makes sense because it does so much for that one camera that needs help in that department. GH4 is not one of those that, I mean, it's not, people don't call it a low light camera, but it's not like it struggles necessarily with low light. No, I mean, no, I would yeah, say it's, it's like in the been, 7D Mark one yeah. and T2I range of, of quality terrible. low light. It's good. Yeah. And, and, um, and two, there's a lot of great glass out there that's native to the uh, Lumix and everything else that makes me think it's not struggling really to go wide either. So, and those are the two things that helps that gets helped out with the Metabones is you get more light, and because you're bringing the you're reducing the focal, it allows you to get those wider shots if that's what you're looking for. So the Black Magic totally makes sense for me because I think it needs help in that department to be a great camera, uh, but the GH4. 
like you said, now we're having one that's built for just the 4K, you know, mode of the GH4. And I'm like, I, I just don't see it needing that much help. So things like you're talking about with the autofocus and everything else like that makes a lot more sense for I need to run around and get these shots with my Canon glass. Yeah, I think um, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't the uh, speed booster for the uh, pocket camera uh, require a different type like the there's the S version and then there's the regular speed booster and the regular one is for uh, the pocket camera and the S version is for the GH4? Uh, no, or as far the, as I do know. Both of them this, work this on the, the pocket ago. camera, but only the S version works oh. on the GH4. I, this was a long time ago, but if I recall, the pocket camera version made for the pocket camera uh, doesn't work on any other micro four thirds camera because it protrudes extremely deep into um, the mount where the one normally for the GH3 slash GH4, because I've I looked at the passive ones like the Nikon ones because that's most of the glass I own. Um, those ones, on the other hand, uh, they'll work on the you know the pocket cinema. So you could get a, a one that works on both the GH4 and the pocket cinema. But just like here with the 4K mode, if you want it to be even wider and even faster, uh, they do make one that is built uh, specifically for the Black Mod, uh pocket cinema camera. Jeez, that's hard to say. And uh, <laughs> that and that one uh, goes right up to the sensor. I think it would scratch any other camera that you put it in. Uh, but the black or, or no, no, the shutter collides with it. That's what it is, because the pocket cinema camera doesn't have a shutter. So it allows you to protrude deeper, get closer to the sensor and go even wider. So I think you get an extra like third of a stop um, as well as instead of um, uh, what's what I'm looking for. Instead of like a one a point seven or something like that, yeah, the multiplier, like, I think, changes point. on the pocket camera as well with that longer extrusion piece yeah. that sticks into the, the barrel. It's like it goes to like six, three or six, four. X multiplier as opposed to a 7.1 or 7.2, whatever the uh, version 4 is. Right. And looking at the one for Nikon right now, it takes that 2.88x crop that you get with the Blackmagic Pocket uh, and turns it into a 1.75, which is closer to your um, APS Super 35 or SC. So, and you don't you don't necessarily get uh, that much reduction with any of the other Micro Four Third ones. So it's one of those where I've considered that a lot because I go, this camera could use the help. The other cameras, I'm like, they aren't dying for it. So, yeah, I'm reaching over DJ here right now, and uh, <laughs> you know, for I find myself instead of using this with Canon glass, I end up this is smaller than my Canon glass combined with the Metabones adapter. So I end up and grabbing lighter. my uh, yeah. So I end up grabbing my Voigtlanders, and I have a, a set of three of these: the 17.5, the uh, uh, 25 and the 42.5, I think it is. And, uh, you know, with those, those are all 0.95. They're fairly sharp. They're manual yeah. focus, and they provide enough uh, low light capabilities with the GH4 that it's maybe, you know, arguably you get a little bit more out of the uh, Metabones adapter speed booster, but not so much that you're like, oh, if only I had this instead of my Voigtlander. It's yeah, and I don't know. Maybe I'm just being weird here, but uh, to me, it seems like the this if you can get them at the right price or that um, that uh, magic uh, uh, what is it? Uh, shoot, uh, you know the magic. lens we were talking about last uh, episode. The the, the oh SLR 20, magic. Yeah, the SLR magic. Thank you. Uh, the SLR magic lenses are down in the four or five hundred dollar range, and yeah. that's the price of this freaking adapter. Because new, <laughs> yeah. this is five ninety nine. Five ninety nine. You can go get a used Voigtlander twenty five millimeter for that price, and you'll be 
probably just as happy as using this with a, an additional lens that you have to buy unless you already own some Canon kit. And a lot well, of the people and- I know that are moving to... Uh, Panasonic were moving from Canon and they're they're getting rid of the mm-hmm. Canon stuff. So then this right. is just another thing to, to make you kind of hold on to your <laughs> Canon glass where otherwise you could just chuck it and go get something new that's specific for your body and your the GH4 in general. Right. And and as the mirrorless guys who've been shooting way before uh, mirrorless started doing really great video, I've always said they're like the whole point of going mirrorless is to shrink your kit. You know, so you don't have a backpack full of lenses and bodies. It's so that you could shrink everything down and really make it more manageable, easier to transport, easier to take on the plane and all that kind of stuff. So that's also a huge advantage, too. Sometimes just the weight of loading in and loading out gear is half of the battle in some shoots. Well, and a few people have asked me in person, you own all this GH4 equipment and you have all these micro four thirds lenses. Why do you still hold on to your Canon stuff? And uh, the main reason for me is actually uh, the image science, the, the the color that you get out of the uh, 5D Mark III and the 6D. Mm-hmm. And the the other thing is, like, I know everybody wants the sharpest image ever, but I actually kind of prefer the look of a softer Canon image with whatever bit gurgling it does before the images <laughs> is crapped out on your card. It. It looks nice to me. I, I was just working on an edit uh, this morning with an editor out of Omaha, Nebraska, and we were looking at the shot, and we're like, man, this looks great. And then we had a sister shot with the GH4, and he's like, oh, can you um, put some blur on that or something? Because it just <laughs> it looks too sharp. It doesn't look good. It doesn't yeah. you know fit in. And I know it's going backwards in, in a little bit from like the resolution hunt and the pixel peeping hunt and everything mm-hmm. else, but... I still enjoy the look of my 5D Mark III with my Canon glass. I use the GH4 quite a bit, don't get me wrong. It is a very practical and very useful camera, but I still kind of have a sweet spot in my heart for the look I get out of the 5D Mark III. Yeah, you know, be damned to the, like, sharp image or whatever, you know? I don't think you're crazy either. I mean, nobody's ever called something like uh, an Arri Alexa or a Red Epic – a camera that doesn't have detail. No one said that those cameras uh, don't produce a great sharp image. Uh, but then in the side-by-side test, the GH4 shows that it resolves way more detail. It's not even just a sharpness. It's way more detailed than those other two cameras. And I think it goes to show you that, like, yeah, you can go after the sharpest image you can, especially if you want to be accurate. And I know, too, uh, for documentary work or um, journalism, things like that, that is kind of what you're always striving for. Uh, but if you're coming to tell a story and things like that, um, you know, most of the time film was never sharp. You know, the focus was never quite on for most of the shots, especially if you're watching old films like Top Gun and stuff like that. You'll notice quite a few points where they miss the focus. Uh, and that's OK, because you get involved with the story and the aesthetics and everything else. So it, it totally makes sense. Uh, it's just a disappointment that the um, the C100 or C300 wasn't good enough for you, DJ, <laughs> that you could use your canning glass on that stuff. Yeah, I tried to to fall in love with the C100. You know, I took her out on a lot of dates, uh, you know, fancy <laughs> restaurants, and showed her all of the stops, and just did not do it for me. Um, I ended up going back to my 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 5D Mark III and and being happy mm-hmm. with it. I still shoot on the T2i on occasion. If yeah. I have a camera that I 
need to put in an area where I'm not concerned or I don't want to be as concerned about it getting busted or what have you, I go grab a T2I out of the bag. They're 130 bucks. I have a couple and of it, them laying around yeah. and I slap some of my cheaper lenses on there, like the 518 or the uh, 35 F2. And there you go. Now you have like a better than GoPro, you know, random <laughs> camera that you can stick in the corner and not have to worry about. And with stuff like the wireless controls, um, that tip link adapter that I posted about a while back, you know, you can mm-hmm. run those cameras remotely just like you can the GH4. So now I can just log into it with my phone, see what's going on, frame, start, go, don't worry about it, and <laughs> use it as a B camera. And I don't even have to have an extra operator to do so. I don't know. There's you got to find the camera that works best for you. But I guess where I'm going with this random off-track rant <laughs> is that basically if you're happy with the image, don't worry about going to find the next big thing in cameras. Just go out and shoot a bunch of stuff because if you like it then that's all that matters if your critics are complaining that it's not sharp enough or whatever then obviously the story wasn't captivating enough to pull them away from whatever sensor size or detail quality or whatever that you're shooting on so you know focus in on that as opposed to the latest and greatest although don't get me wrong i love to play (laughs) with the latest and greatest gear and speaking of latest and greatest gear devin this next one is yours (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it turns out right after we did some comments on the Logger's Lunchbox run and gun, um, I guess as a first impression, like I said, I'm still working on a full review. I'm still really getting to know the gear. Uh, it seems like literally the next day they announced a bunch of changes. Uh, so I thought that uh, just in general, I'd briefly go over them. For one thing, uh, they've considered the the one they've shipped out to be a beta product. And it's not supposed to be the final version. It's officially labeled a 3.2, which they are still selling. You can still go and buy one right now, and I think it'll ship. I don't want to say June 1st. I think July 1st they'll start shipping them. And uh, But August 1st they're supposed to ship what they consider the final product, 3.3. Though they don't want to leave the Kickstarter crowd like me out of the dust. They're talking about doing a lot of free upgrades, which is – uh, some parts with the sled that's supposed to make it easier to manage, uh, which I didn't go into, but there are some uh, qualms I have with it. They're also talking about uh, grips, adding rosettes and stuff like that, so you can do your own grips, or they also are going to provide another grip. So they're giving these free hardware upgrades as soon as they become available. Uh, they're also making a counterweight system if you're not going to get the big battery in the back. Now, the 3.3... Uh, is supposed to be a few pounds lighter. Um, And I don't think I touched on in the last time, but this is 9.2 pounds without anything on top of it, Uh, which is pretty heavy when you consider most cameras maybe come in at two pounds to five pounds, depending on if you're talking DSLR or like a C-series camera. So uh, it is a lot, and they're trying to shave that off, and they're trying to work that down, but they're planning on making a lot of improvements too, as well as like a top grip handle that's supposed to have cable management and a few other things. Uh, but it's they're going to have it retail for the same price. Also, they uh, when I talked to them, they said, too, that the pricing has gone kind of crazy, uh, but it's finally settled down and it will be two grand. But it was kind of crazy before because they're having trouble locking down uh, people, resources and parts and ways to get it made. So uh, but besides that, it's um, they're going to make general improvements. They aren't going to leave the Kickstarter guys out. They're going to actually ship free improvements as well. Um, and I think too that technically the two grand mark for selling these things actually puts them at a little bit of a loss, but they're fine with that because of uh, where they won't see the product going and where they're headed with it. So exciting stuff. If you kickstarted it um, as well too, if this product has interested you, 
pretty much all the complaints I made about it, they're addressing in one way or another. Still won't know it's a perfect product till I have it in my hands, but um, it's good to see that they are listening to the community and they're reacting. Have you taken it out on any shoots yet? I have taken it out on uh, one or two side shoots. I haven't taken it out on a client shoot yet, but I've um, I've ran around and just I would feel like to do um, you know ENG with it instead of my normal shoulder rig. And the impression was, yeah, it's still heavy. I still got to figure out how to work out that counterweight issue um, because that's going to wear on me real fast. Um, that's one thing that annoys me when I don't have a balanced camera because I think it hurts my stability as well. While, while I, can, I can hold the weight and everything else, it's more just the fact that when I want to do smooth movements, it's just like having a balanced camera on your tripod. You want the camera to be balanced so that when you're doing pans and tilts, they're all smooth. And so for me, it's the same thing on my shoulder. I want it to be balanced on my shoulder so that I can make smooth movements with it and move it around easily. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to see where they go. They haven't really shown what the new one will look like, but it sounds like it'll have a very similar core. I'm thinking, too, maybe some parts could also be swapped out and upgradable that they aren't considering it giving out free parts to the community. So... But it's, it's one of those, it's exciting. It's, it's exciting to hear that they're making improvements, but so far I'm not in love with it yet. I'm still fully working it out, trying to figure it out and seeing really where it fits into my workflow. But I don't hate it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of in this <laughs> middle ground. Maybe once I get a proper handle and stuff like that, uh, you know, my opinion of it will change when I'll be able to manhandle this like the way I think I should be able to. Yeah, I'm interested to see how that comes along. It was really nice of them to contact us, by the way, and, uh, you know, kind of let us know where they're going with the product and everything, mm -hmm. especially, you know, with uh, Devin just getting it in and, and messing around with it. Um, I was surprised to get that kind of quick turnaround and feedback. So thanks, guys, <laughs> for that. Moving on down the line to something that's kind of interesting and kind of weird here, and I'm actually going to show my screen so you guys can see what I'm talking about in the show notes. <laughs> this is, uh, they found, CNET basically found this, over at Computex, and it's from um, Microdia. Microdia. I'm gonna. That's. I'm gonna pronounce it that, that way. Don't worry about it. Enough. Yeah, close, close enough. enough. Uh, this is a 512 gig micro SD card, and whatever class version this is, SD 4.0 UHS 2. It's 300 megs read and write capable, and that is crazy. I, you know. I don't even know where to begin with this. We're not quite there to where everybody needs something like this yet. But, man, this is exciting stuff for uh, people that are moving into, like, the the smaller area cameras and stuff like that where, you, you know, now you have super fast data rates on a micro SD card and you have the capacity of up to two terabytes. It's priced accordingly, though. Uh, 512 gigs is going to set you <laughs> back about $1,000 plus. Uh, could this be the next big thing for 4K cameras coming in the future, maybe for raw footage or some sort of compressed Kodak that's a little bit more expanded, Devin? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, um, even, too, for a few other cameras, such as um, uh, things that Blackmagic may come up with, uh, 300 megabits per second, which we, there's no benchmarks, but if we go off of what they say, can handle 1080p ProRes really well. And I imagine, I think, too, that you could probably start handling raw uh, 2K footage at that those kind of bit rates. I, like I've said before, I really see 4K both as a capture format. I mean, there will always be like ProRes and raw 4K, but I see for most people 4K capture moving towards um, H.255 or 
yeah, to, well, no, H two fifty six. What whatever the next one is, I yeah don't know why I can't remember. But anyways, the new codec that's going to make it about half the size that it was before. Uh, but bit rates like this are still going to be necessary in order to get the full quality out of that four K. I'm super excited for something like this, and it's kind of surprising to see these kind of specs happen in a micro SD. Like that's kind of unreal for me, especially the speed part of it. Uh, to come from out of the micro SD, but I think that it goes to show that uh, uh, the memory companies are ready for you to start buying 4K cameras. They're ready to start charging in and uh, selling you all those datas and speeds that you need. Because for a while, I kept thinking, we're going to have to do something about these bit rates because I haven't seen a huge drop in anything except SSDs. SSDs has gone up in uh, uh, you know speeds and has gone down in price, but in terms of SD cards, I what last year we just there really wasn't a whole lot going on except like incremental improvements so this looks pretty big who knows how well it'll hold up though because we know sometimes those uh companies will throw big numbers on their boxes and they don't always uh equal big numbers in the benchmarks so i think uh didn't we last year see the um 128 gig cards with the new uh uhs3 classification and that was allowing yeah. like a guaranteed 4k minimum um 60 megs write i believe and 90 megs read was the like the right. minimum for that standard so i'm looking right now and you got me trying to remember too uh <laughs> 422 was the high quality uh kodak prores kodak before yeah. the new one is 444 xq so uh, that showed up in the new final cut pro edition um mm-hmm. looks like uh into last year I think, and uh, so that has some color improvements as well as some compression improvements. I haven't been following along as as well as I should because I've kind of gotten slack in my ways. Um, they've actually been on top of ProRes for a little while now, and I completely lost track of it. Uh, Rec 709 and some of the other stuff that's been coming out is vastly improved the image quality that they're getting. Uh, now they're working in a 12-bit space with this 444, so, uh, 444. Four fours, but uh, yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I might have to go do some Kodak reading and check into what ProRes is up to now. Moving on down the line to what another company is up to. Does anybody care that GoPro is releasing a low end version of their camera only with an LCD backpack built in and a touchscreen for two ninety nine? Are you even remotely excited about this? Is this like you know tickle your (laughs) fancy, or why wouldn't you just go use the phone app and get the cheaper version for like one twenty nine. Am, am I wrong? It's, well, it, it seems like a huge price markup for uh, for what's an LCD screen and a touch screen. Uh, because I know too, I've seen them there. They've been dumping uh, the LCD screens, touch screens. I've seen like at Walmart, people have posted pictures of uh, GoPro accessories being on clearance, like battery backpacks and stuff like that. So uh, I think this is really just GoPro trying to uh, cannibalize the lower end of the action cam marketplace uh because obviously they they they're kind of kings in that 400 dollars price point where somebody spends 400 500 on an action cam uh but here in this situation i see it as uh you know they they already came back to the low market you know with that 120 130 camera saying hey we also make the best cheap gopro camera um, which almost feels like they're trying to keep people from like selling old like uh, you know Hero Twos and Hero Threes by being like no buy the new one, um, <laughs> but it's one of those that's uh, I don't know because it's just it I don't 
see the point. Um, I'm sure for a lot of people, uh, you know, for Christmas, people who like skateboarding and stuff like that and just kind of do it on the side because it's fun and it's just a little hobby, they may appreciate having that uh, screen on there because I will say it improves customer experience. Uh, you don't need to load an app. You don't need to sync it with your phone. It does make it easier to just turn the camera on, tap a few settings, set it to whatever, 1080p, 720, whatever, and hit record. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that, you know, it's terrible. I know that there's a market out there. There will be people that will buy it. But I guess in terms of video production and stuff like that, uh, it does nothing for me. And I think for most of the video production marketplace, which are the people who cheer on the GoPro, um, they, I don't think that they'll be too uh, excited by an announcement like this. Though I have heard that uh, GoPro is looking to launch their own sensor and kind of really customize inside and out their own camera for this next release that they're going to do. So it'll be interesting what they come up with then and see if they also come up with a lower budget option of that as well. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. The company keeps releasing stuff and it's still not, you know, anything better than what they've already made. So, well, I'm looking Take online right now on Amazon, and it looks like you can buy a used GoPro backpack LCD touchscreen uh, for sixty three dollars on Amazon. So, if you combined their hundred and twenty nine or hundred and forty dollar whatever offering with that, you're still mm -hmm. well underneath of two ninety nine. Now, I'll grant you that I, I believe, if I read the specs correctly, the new version of uh, the GoPro has a slightly higher resolution and a more sensitive touchscreen. That may not be the right. case. Don't quote me on that because <laughs> I just had time to like skim through the specs. But if that is the case, I mean, that's a slight jump. But still, again, with the phone apps and right. everything else that are available, you know, how do you sell people on this stuff? I mean, put a plus on it and say, yeah, go for it. Or, you know, put an extra number on it and say, this is the next good thing. Now, the sensor bit that you mentioned, that would be interesting. Right now, if you're not familiar, the reason most people know what's coming from GoPro is because they build off of a specific platform. Uh, there's a company that makes a board with a chip as well as all of the integrated stuff you need, including the interface for the micro SD card and so on. And then GoPro buys that and then builds the case, builds the lens interface and all that stuff, and then and the puts software. it together and the software. So what they do basically is the next spec release from this company tells you what's going to be in the next GoPro. And that's how they knew when 4K was coming, when 4K at 15 frames per second was going to be there, when 2.7K was coming, and so on. But if GoPro moves into their own sensor, that means they're probably going to need to develop or at least work with someone else to develop a, a board and all the other controller right. stuff that goes along with that in order to uh, acqu acqu uh, for acquisition from the new sensor. So mm -hmm. right. that could mean that they're starting from scratch or it could mean they're partnering with somebody like Sony. I don't know. Uh, Sony makes so many sensors now. And, and we just talked about this actually last episode, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> that super skinny sensor uh, that uses mm -hmm. white, red, and and uh, was it white, red, and blue pixels or white, red, and green pixels? No, I, I think it emitted uh, the green. No, yeah, it, well, yeah anyway, yeah, like emitted the green. It just had white. Yeah, yeah, they use white as a contrast uh, variant, and then they they calculate out the missing color, and that makes the sensor smaller, and it also provides for more light input because you have one less. Uh, element for the light to travel through and then I, I think that was even uh, added with like a backlit sensor type system so you know maybe we'll see that maybe we'll actually see low light performance coming to GoPro you know that would be well, cool and anything too that can get them to stop chewing through batteries oh yeah they can get some kind of solution where 
And maybe, too, that's part of it is being able to change the form factor so they don't have, you know, uh, that's one thing I always liked about Contour before they went away is that I thought Contour had a really decent form factor to their cameras. Uh, even though their color bit rates may not be as good as GoPro, I liked how sleek it was and how I could hide it easier. So in this case, if they move to something like that too, I hope it would also mean too that uh, their hardware requires less power. It's more efficient so that if you're doing something like a time lapse, you'll actually get more time on the battery rather than the same time you would if you recorded video. So little things like that uh, would go a long way towards uh towards me getting excited about gopro again now the other thing i'd like to see and i mean this is kind of just a wish list here but i would like to <laughs> see them add to the gopro the ability to access some of the main photography features you know uh, right now you're kind of locked out of of your aperture and you're locked out of your shutter speed and some of the other stuff they've opened up like sort of a color range on the pro version where you can you know use pro tunes and set it to like a, a base image so you can color correct and post they've given you some control over yeah. your color settings and so on but not all the control is there and you see you see really cool stuff like the rib cage for example which allows you to adapt uh, uh c-mount lenses to the gopro and basically build the jacket around it now imagine if you had full access to all of your lens and and uh, sensor controls now you can put a lens on there and use it like you would any other camera and that makes it even more valuable as opposed to like sort of having yeah. a hybrid auto system running on the camera itself maybe that's a way that gopro could become attractive again in the market i mean don't get me wrong it's not like people are running away from gopros <laughs> left and right and no one's buying them it's Go, just that GoPro's still king. right still now king. every product we've seen from them uh since the major one has just been you know little things to kind of keep the name in the market as opposed to major updates to their platform in general uh you know since right. the 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 last version I, I don't know is there is there any, anything else amazing come out they've you know started to uh release smaller cases and a couple of battery backpacks that are a little bit slimmer but i mean we're still dealing with what one and a half hours if you're lucky a battery life uh not yeah. really much of a way to expand that without some sort of external usb port or the battery pack maybe gets you up to two hours if you use the battery backpack i mean I don't know. This is an action cam. You got to take it out in the field and you got to run around and you can't get right. more than two hours of battery life out of it. I mean, people are going to be doing action stuff out in the field for longer than two hours, I would think. Yes. And for people who don't have the Hero 4 and you're like me and you still got like the 3 and the 3 Plus, uh, just a recommendation uh, because I used them on this last trip I was on and I had a blast is Wasabi has power extended batteries uh, for the GoPro and uh, just like the backpack, uh, the backpack makes your GoPro a little thicker. They've combined both a backpack and an internal battery into one unit for $35. And uh, normally the backpack is supposed to double your battery life. I find that it gave, gives me maybe 70 or 80% more. Uh, the Wasabi basically turned what normally when I record with Wi-Fi on and all this other stuff, like an hour of recording, uh, the Wasabi turned it into two and a half hours of recording. So nice. more or less, it, it did more than double, which the GoPro backpacks never did. Um, and it's only 35 bucks to pop from uh, Wasabi. I picked up two of them, and it really helped the, the 
camera lasts throughout the day and lasts with all the stuff I needed. And just a recommendation, if you're out there looking for batteries, you can swap them out all the time. But for me, I'm usually in situations where I can't crack them open and swap them out, uh, especially if you're doing stuff around water and you're concerned about dropping your camera and stuff like that. So something to keep in mind, they're about as expensive as the original GoPro batteries are, and you get a lot more bang for your buck. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I've been complaining about the GoPro for years, but I have the 4 right here, I have the 3 Plus laying around back there, I use them on a regular basis, they're in my kit as an important part of my setup, and I am not unhappy with it, it's just that they've kind of stopped doing upgrades for some of their versions and they've kind of done some sort of not as consumer friendly things that have sort of irritated me. You know, for example, the, the, the three owners, the, the black version or whatever, and then they had the plus version, the, mm -hmm. they stopped updating the firmware on the previous one, even though the newer one was the same hardware, only slightly skinnier. So they could have easily offered up some of those upgrades to the previous yeah. version if they wanted to, but they chose not to. And it was just sort of frustrating and irritating. And then that whole thing where, you know, okay, well, we want to make sure we still support SanDisk. So we're going to go ahead and scale back the bit rate on the, right, uh, yeah. on the card. You know, it's, I don't know. It's just stuff like that where as a company that's designed to be like super friendly and super consumer oriented and kind of to those extremes. And then they kind of do silly stuff like that. That just seems like they're not in touch with their their end users or their customer base and they don't care as much. So you're getting kind of mixed signals from them and it is frustrating. I don't know if anybody's going to knock them off their throne anytime soon, but you know, you never know. Mm -hmm. Maybe Apple will get into the patent and, uh, <laughs> you know, start building something new that goes along or competes with or whatever. No one yet has really knocked GoPro off the perch though. So, uh, in that yep. price range, they are still King. Now, one last thing I've got here in the show notes, Devin, and then I'll let you add anything mm -hmm. you've got in mind. Um, I was messing around with this this morning, actually. It came across by accident. I had a stills image that I needed to incorporate into an edit, and I was kind of getting some weird results with it. Like, I couldn't get the color of the image to match everything else. And so I was in Photoshop, and I was like, oh, I wonder if I can just save the curves settings for mm -hmm. the image and then just import it into Premiere Pro. And I wasn't able to quite do that. I, you know, I experimented a little bit. I didn't try too hard, but I was able to bring the entire uh, clip into After Effects and then just import my curve settings right into After Effects without any issue at all. Open it up, apply them, and then go. And that was it. I mean, I know I'm using <laughs> curves here, so obviously I'm not like on the high end of color grading, but sure, that sure. <laughs> really saved me some time and I didn't even know it was possible. So if you're out there I and you're running around, possible. the curves plugin for. Photoshop is compatible with the Curves plugin for AE, and it may very well be compatible with uh, the Premiere Pro uh, Curves plugin. I, I just didn't get it to work in the short time I had to mess around with it. Devin, do you know any other crazy tricks <laughs> like this that uh, you know I will discover eventually? Uh, you know what? It's it it shouldn't <laughs> surprise me that something like that's possible because of the fact that it is so well integrated. Um, like one trick I've learned uh, that I've never tried copying and pasting like you have between the two, but uh, After Effects has all the same blending and layer styles that appear in Photoshop. And that's part of what allows you to jump between Photoshop and yeah. After Effects in, in both directions, whether you need to take something and kind of do, I mean, the, the taking a frame from After Effects to Photoshop is not 
perfect. But definitely the other direction, After Effects is ready to take whatever you have and render it just like it does in um, Photoshop. So a lot of the time what I do, especially if I'm dealing with text layers or something like that, I find that it really helps to improve my render times instead of putting a drop shadow effect on it is that I'll go into blending styles and add the drop shadow in there. Something about the way that Photoshop does some of those outline effects instead of a stroke effect and stuff like that seems to go much faster and still produce the same amount of quality I would have gotten if I used one of the plugins that's built into um, uh, the After Effects package. Yeah, I was actually, I, I used that a little while ago. I was doing that effect where you freeze a frame and then you bring the character oh, out yeah, yeah. Uh, about, you know, so it makes him look like he's floating above and then you do the action title above it. And I was doing the right. action title and the floating from a still that I grabbed from the shoot in uh, Photoshop and then importing it into After Effects. And, you know, the layers compatibility as well as the blend mode. And the blend mode, that's kind of a funny thing because, you know, when we were younger and you had text and you had Photoshop <laughs> for the first time, you're like, look at this sweet text, man. I put some shadows behind yeah. it. Oh, man, I, uh, you know, I Gaussian blurred it and I put a little bit of like <laughs> uh, beveling on the outside or I made it glow, yeah. you know, and you're and now like I find myself like oh i still do need blend mode but that's okay yeah. and now <laughs> just as long as i don't get too crazy and make it look like it's wrapped in cellophane i'm okay to, right. to use a drop shadow or whatever well, and, and like uh for me too doing like gradients uh on your text or your layers and stuff like that uh blending modes can handle that as well um it's one of those that you probably don't get as fine of control as you do with some of the plugins this and that with uh, a few of the ways that you apply effects but I always notice it goes way faster, plus it's cross-compatible. So if you want to dump it back over into Photoshop, all of those will follow along with it. Uh, so you don't need to keep doing a round trip uh, if for some reason you're going from After Effects to Photoshop, which generally you go the other direction. But just if something comes up, it's nice to know that, hey, I could apply all these drop shadows and crap like that. And then when I bring that frame into Photoshop, I still have all my settings right there. Yeah, the other thing I've been playing around with, and I'm, I'm not really good at it yet, but uh, the video capabilities of Photoshop now allow you to do uh, frames and basically um, little bits of animation and stuff like that in uh, in Photoshop without having to leave it. It actually gives you a film reel at the bottom of the screen and everything. I'm not completely 100% on how it all works, but I have been able to do a few simple things with it and kind of turn it into to something useful. So that's definitely something to go play around with. I mean, maybe if you're doing stop motion animation or something like that, maybe you could capture your images and bring them in specifically into Photoshop and generate your video that way. I don't know. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely what, uh, uh, it, it's stuff like that, that shows me that, um, uh, you know, kind of like, I feel like I made the right choice by, um, diving deeper into Adobe. Not that, uh, you should ignore Final Cut or ignore Avid. They're all great tools. And there's a reason why you use one over the other, but, um, it just I'm, I'm always happy with it. the fact that, a, you know, Adobe has a few headaches like any other editor does. Uh, but when you go between Premiere and After Effects and you go between Photoshop and After Effects and Premiere and the way that that all works and you jump over to Audition to do stuff. It just makes me like I, I just get excited again because I'm like, man, this just wasn't possible, you know, that long ago. And it all works so well right now. It's like if there's one thing that Adobe has just gotten right and that rarely ever fails on me is this whole dynamic linking stuff just seems to work. And it always makes me excited to work with Adobe software. Yeah, it is really nice to go from Premiere to After Effects and back again round trip. And with the new rendering stuff, it's really handy. 
one more pro tip, um, and I don't know if this is a pro tip, but it's really handy thing that I've run across is um, sometimes to make it a shot look a little bit more like you used a, 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 an old lens or to like kind of age it a little bit to sort of Instagram filter it. I like to add a little bit <laughs> of vignetting to it. And you can do that in After Effects, but it actually processes it live and eats up a ton of CPU cycles oh, and yeah. uh, a lot of graphics processing in order to render out properly. But the easy and cheap and dirty way is to go into Photoshop and use a gradient, a circle gradient, and you can generate whatever vignetting you want. And then you can bring that in as a transparent layer in either After Effects or even Premiere Pro and drop it right on top of your image. And bam, now you have a zero process required uh, vignetting applied to your image without any issue at all. And it doesn't take any more rendering time because it's just a transparency over the top of your regular image to give you that. And you can even reverse that and do a little bit of a cleanup on the corners. If you have a, a bit of a fall off in light there, you can flip it over and have, have it be additive to that and, and actually boost those corners to correct for whatever lens problems you have. If you want to try and keep everything all at the same uh, color, or, you know, darkness level. And, and it renders way faster because you've simplified the color math that it has to do in order to create that effect. So Yeah, I was trying to do some, um, an, uh, a security camera shot for the scene I was working on. And, I, you know, I went through all the process and I'm like, man, this is taking forever to render. And I'm like, oh, I use the vignette on After Effects as opposed to just bringing in a transparency <laughs> layer. And as soon as I put the transparency layer in, it was playing back in real time, saved me a, bun- a bunch mm-hmm. of headache and, and everything else. So super nice to deal with. Definitely uh, something. I, oh, yeah, exactly. Now, one <laughs> last thing I want to touch on before we close up the cast. And uh, we were kind of talking about that Seiki monitor and graphics cards that can drive a 4K panel. Um, right now, guys, one of the best single-card packaged uh, GPUs out there for driving 4K panels that uh, is an affordable price range is actually the uh, the R9 295X. That's basically two 290Xs in a single package. It's a crazy behemoth. that has a water cooler and everything, but they're on eBay right now used for like four ninety nine and five hundred bucks, and if you look wow. at the rating for that card versus even its closest competitor, the uh, um, GTX nine eighty, and they just did release the nine eighty Ti, but I think that's going to be around six ninety nine or seven hundred fifty something like that for uh, starting price. You know, that's a hell of a deal for a Radeon R nine two ninety five. I mean. It's a it's a very power hungry card, and you're gonna have to have a C, um, a power supply that can handle that. But man, if you look at the uh, 4K results for both gaming and everything else, that card is really pulling ahead because of the price and value it offers compared to even I think um, I was just looking on PCPer.com, so go swing over there. They they've got a comparison of the new 980 Ti with the R9 295 and the R9 295 is is keeping up with and ahead of the 980 Ti uh, in most uh, 4K applications. So, you know, wow. that's a really sexy proposition for the price as long as you don't mind having a pretty hardcore power supply and, uh, you know, dealing with the water cooling issues because, you know, the card is natively water cooled. Uh, right. That's still, man, that's really a freaking affordable. And the other one is the... The 290X is down to like 
250 and 260 used and 300 i've been seeing it on sale for like 300 so those kind of roll into my pick of the week but man definitely go <laughs> look for an r9 295x those guys are are super affordable right now in the used market and yes i know i'm gonna get some people that say well those are probably used for some kind of coin mining or whatever and also there's <laughs> the whole cuda versus uh open cl but um mm-hmm. honestly i've been using both a r9 290x and my titan and um independently on either computer editing and they're both running um uh, i7 4790s or well, I guess the other one's running to 4770, but still, uh, I haven't really noticed any issue as far as rendering goes or performance differences. The plug-in support for one versus the other is kind of so mirrored right now and getting better with the next version of Premiere coming out. I, I think they're releasing yeah, they it in another week it. or it so. Getting better and better. Yeah, so when that comes out, and I think you know, I don't like to promote. Um, any one product, but I think Apple has really helped a lot in that regard because they keep releasing <laughs> new towers with uh, Radeon uh, graphics processors on there. And because of that, right. like, it, they were in this kind of um, GTX 980 you know, slump where they were only using CUDA. But now, because of that, it, it's kind of driven the market more towards supporting uh, both cards equally well. So, yeah, definitely yeah. a freaking good deal as long as you have like a <laughs> 750 50 or 800 watt power supply in your system yeah you that does require some serious power because it is two graphic cards stuck together uh and then water cooled to just try to keep it all manageable um my pick of the week uh is uh kickstarter time uh Uh-oh. which i still don't recommend kickstarter at all but um it's uh it's called the parrot prompter and so if you're listening to the audio podcast you'll just have to go online and see uh uh, what it's uh, what it's all about, but it's a super small prompter that uh, has a 77 millimeter threading in the back. So you actually screw this onto the front lens of your camera, and then um, with this you get uh, an actual nice piece of glass. It was going to be some kind of plastic or uh, poly, but they actually uh, fi- upgraded to glass before they shipped. And then it's got a small spring on the bottom here that uh, holds your cell phone. And so I. I guess just as a quick example, I got a Note 4, which is kind of a giant phone, uh, so it won't be sewer. But you can kind of see there that uh, it's small because, like I said, it's barely bigger than a 77 millimeter. But it's one of those that this is small enough that I can always keep it in my camera bag or my grip bag. Uh, and if somebody starts screwing up lines for a corporate video or something like that with your cell phone, you've got a really quick, dirty prompter. So I, I wouldn't use it if the situation calls for a prompter, but it's one of those that's super convenient. Um, I still plan on doing a full review on it for now. But uh, first impressions is that, uh, what did it come in at? I think the MSRP for it was under 100, if I remember right. Uh, I'm looking unprepared here. But, yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, I just got actually got an email from him um, last week. He was oh, telling yeah. me that uh, he made their deadline uh, for delivery. Yeah. So it was delivered on time and a little bit early. And, you know, it looks like a pretty good deal. Um, he's a really nice guy, by the way. Uh, uh, he's been emailing me back and forth, telling me about the progress, because I, you know, I was kind of mm-hmm. curious, so I asked him about it. What do you think about it? Is it is it as good, I mean, using your phone in that manner, is that as good as a regular teleprompter? And what are you using to control your phone? He's- are you using another phone or some kind of remote or what? 
So that's that's part that I haven't gotten to yet because uh, it just showed up a few days ago, and you can still order it now. And it looks like it'll be about 150 now uh, for a piece of it. I think I may have gotten it for 90. I'm not sure though. Uh, but he's supposed to have two elements to it, if I recall right. One piece that I don't think I ordered, which was the um, basically using the cable for like a headphone jack. Uh, where you'd have normally like volume up, volume down, but instead he's planning to come out with software, if I recall right, that that those would turn into like pause buttons or speed up, speed down buttons uh, so that who's ever using the prompter can actually kind of remotely control it that way. And then I think too, his software was supposed to have some kind of interconnectivity, but I know there's Android software out there that will have uh, remote control capabilities between two devices over Bluetooth or over Wi-Fi. So um I haven't. I don't think he's done with the software yet. I haven't seen an announcement as far as the Kickstarter updates I've received. So, like I said, I haven't fully tested it or run it out in the field or really played with it. But first impressions are the glass was super clean. It didn't discolor anything. Uh, besides, usually, you know, it makes it a little darker and probably slightly more blue, like pretty much all prompter glass does. So. Uh, for that, though, I'm excited to go try it out because for me, it's, it's all about the size and that's what he's selling. It's also kind of the price, too. But for something that uh, fits in my hand and weighs probably maybe an ounce and a half or so, like it's really just plastic and glass, one piece of glass. Uh, it's one of those that I can I can almost always have it on me uh, in case something comes up and I need it. It's better than not having a prompter or having them try to read something off camera, which uh, can be problematic as well. Uh, I wouldn't say that it replaces a real prompter if you're in some kind of a news environment or something like that. But also, I think of things like when you're on the uh, show floor of, you know, some kind of uh, conference or something like that, or say like, you know, you're at NAB reporting on something. Uh, if you've got some talent that needs a little extra help or something like that, you, it's a quick and dirty prompter. And it's, it's one that's light enough that you can always have it on you. And it's light enough to be on any rig and you don't have to modify the rig. You could put it on a steady cam. It's not going to make a difference. So... Uh, little things like that makes me go, oh, this is pretty smart. And uh, and that's why I thought it was worth trying out and backing, though. I have had lots of Kickstarters burn me as well as burn you. <laughs> so uh, remember, Kickstarters are never guaranteed. It's not sharper image. You know, it's not a, a catalog of things to buy. It's uh, <laughs> uh, potential investments is what it is. Now, one more question on that. Um, so the mounting is a thread-based mounting, right? It screws into your lens? Yeah. So and... Um, uh, you know, I probably have more pictures online. I, I didn't see pictures, but the way it actually came together surprised me. Uh, in the back here, I mean, uh, this piece has got a cover on it, which I'll take off real quick. Okay, so that's the adapter screw mount. Screw mount. Yeah, which is metal. So I'm a fan of that, that it's not plastic. So you screw the ring onto your 77 millimeter, whatever, and adapt it to whatever lens face you need. And then with uh, this, it actually just slides in and then snaps into the plastic. Okay. So it makes it easy to apply because you can screw this on and not have to try to twist the entire thing around your lens and then just uh, you slide it onto that and it snaps into place and it freely rotates too in case like you need to tighten it or something like that. But um, I mean, that's it. It's really super simple. It's a really simple concept. Uh, and then for people who are worried about their phone falling out, especially if they've got, you know, a giant phone like I do, like a Note 4, uh, he did put, uh, which you won't be able to see in the camera shot, uh, did put... Um, one of those washable sticky pads, you know, like the micro suction pads. Oh, okay, okay. So you put one of those, so it, it's pretty sticky, and, and with the springs, it has enough pressure. It's not going to go anywhere, even if you get aggressive with your camera. And then when it gets dirty and it stops sticking, you just run some water over it and clean it off, and then it'll be sticky again. So uh, also smart in that respect. It's just super simple, 
And it's one of those where I'm like, oh, I don't imagine any part of this breaking because there's like no moving parts, just super simple. So stuff like that always uh, excites me when it's a simple solution to what's usually a complicated problem. Yeah, now 77 is the max, right, for the uh, filter thread size? Yeah, that's okay. that's what it comes with, and I don't think you'd be able to fit any kind of other ring into it because that's about the max size of it. So to me, 77 is as big as I go. My variable ND is a 77, and my polarizer says 77, and I adapt it, which they all look ridiculous on micro four-thirds <laughs> lenses because they usually come in at, like, you know, 42 to, like, 56 uh, in terms of thread size. But uh, for me, 77 is as big as I've ever gone, so I don't have a problem with it. Other people, though, you know, that may be too small for some lenses. Well, some of the... Uh the newer canning glass, uh, they've been kind of moving towards the 82 uh, millimeter mm -hmm. size. So uh, I was kind of in the same camp. A lot of my stuff was 77. And now I have a few of those popping up where it's like, oh, now you got to buy a larger Stingray, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, ND filter. Um, but I switched to, I know they're cheap and I know they're kind of not as sought after because they kind of turn your image a little bit purple. But man, these cheapo UV protector Tiffin um, uh, variable NDs are like 12 bucks. And especially yeah. for the tiny ones, I mean, they do a pretty good job. And uh, when you need a variable ND filter, you know, you're in bright sunlight. You kind of have a lot of vivid image you're capturing anyway. So, you know, whatever. And same with the teleprompter. I mean, it's not like you're going to be using your teleprompter in pitch dark where you're going to really be concerned about the loss of light when you're filming somebody. You know, right. you're going to be using it, you know, outside or you're going to be using it in an office with probably pretty decent lighting. So that sounds like a really cool thing. I, I don't normally have to use a teleprompter, but it's nice that there's right. something affordable as opposed to the four or $500 options that come all in one or even, uh, I, th I think some of the nicer ones that are designed for the iPad, what, like 1100 bucks? Uh, yeah, I mean, I did get one. I ended up getting one. I forget the company. They do very small runs off eBay, but I think I got an iPad one for about 400 or so, maybe like 350. Okay. Uh, and that's because they're larger pieces of glass. And that one folds up too and is rather portable, uh, but not nearly as portable as this. And like I said, the real sweet spot for it to me, I feel like for my shooting would be like when I have to fly out to a conference or something like that and we're doing stuff on the floor. And it could just be one of those things that the talent can type up the script or whatever, their notes onto the uh, phone, and then just shove their phone in there with some simple prompter software, hit play, and then just start reading their notes. So it, it's one of those that it's, you know, it, it's, it's so small and convenient that I think I'm going to be surprised in where I find myself using it. Well, on that note, guys, we've run through the notes. We have no ending music to play us out. But <laughs> Devin, where can people find you? Uh, impulsenetworks.tv. Uh, I'll probably have a full parrot prompter review out before I get the loggers lunchbox review out just because uh, that thing has got a lot to it. So there's a lot for me to test and go over and really play with. But uh, that's where you'll be able to find more information about me and new projects that I'm up to. On that note, guys, you can find this podcast on iTunes. You'll find the show notes in the links below. You can also swing over to SoundCloud, rate us up, make sure you give us a good review, and click like if you can, because those are all the things that you do on the internet these days. You can also find me over at DSLRFilmNoob.com. As you can see, I have a house now, so things will get back to normal, hopefully. My stuff is arriving in two to three weeks, and I will have a regular studio set up once more, albeit a very small studio, because guess what, guys? I don't have my 4,000 square feet to run around anymore. That sucks, but oh well. On that note, guys, thanks for watching, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on another exciting episode of DSR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs>